Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Curious City Podcast from WBEZ Chicago. Howdy, it's Jen here with the latest Curious City Podcast. You probably know by now, but each episode, we bring you at least one answer to a question that was posed by someone outside of the WBEZ station. That person who gets their question answered could be you. Just to remind you, you can ask your questions at curiouscity.wbez.org. Today, we have another podcast with some bite-sized answers to some bite-sized questions. It's kind of like a snack time curiosity session, little hors d'oeuvres for you. Here's a segment that aired recently on WBEZ's show, The Afternoon Shift, And you might know we're on that show every Wednesday afternoon between 3 and 4 p.m. with the host Rick Kogan, which if you haven't heard his voice, you should tune in just to hear his voice, which is the lowest voice of any man ever to have walked the earth. That's as low as I can go. Anyway, take it away, Rick. I like that kind of mellow music. It seems perfect for our weekly check-in with Curious City. This is where you collaborate intimately with us, most intimately with Jennifer Brandell, the project's uh, producer. And we are joined by Katie Cluxon. This is your first time on live radio. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon. You're a genius already. <laughs> we can tell. You're going to have an incredible career in this. Jen, what's up this week? It's kind of like last week, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. We did this pub trivia um, a couple weeks ago, and we, we basically reported the answers to 10 small questions. So we thought, let's give you three more this week. I thought it was fun last week. Oh, good. What are they? You want to get cracking? Let's get cracking. So our first question comes from this guy, James Kowalski, and he's from Beverly. What a great Chicago name. (laughs) James Kowalski, and here's his clip. My curiosity question was, how many objects do the Field Museum and Art Institute have in their collections at any given time, and what percentage of that is on display? And so that gem of a question we assigned to Katie here. What? That's an intriguing question. You couldn't. You weren't just going to BS this guy and go, well, the Field Museum has 3,421. <laughs> you had to go out and get the real information. Was it fun for you? Right, it was really fun. So we found out the Art Institute has 270,000 works in their permanent collection. And that's a stunt. Did that number stun you, Katie? Yeah. Not, yeah, not, it does yeah, me. Yeah. And they have about 3 to 5% on display at any given time. And where's the rest of it? <laughs> in storage. Their main concern, one of their main concerns, is keeping the art safe from wear and damage. So they actually have a mathematical equation for each work that's susceptible to light damage, how much light it can stand. And they don't wow. press it beyond that. Wow. Who did you talk to over at the Art Institute? Um, I talked with Erin Hogan. The she great Erin Hogan. Novelist, too. Yeah. Novelist. And she talked about how they protect their photography. We have a clip for you. It's really important that the works be cold. So our photography storage, for color photography especially, is it's almost like a meat locker to go in there. It's very, very cold. You have to wear jackets uh, to be in there. But that's the proper way to preserve color photography. 
girl there, and she's always got the information. Was it fun? You went down. Did you go down and look at all of this stuff, too? Yeah, at the Field Museum, um, we have some clips of that also. Do you, you want the stats on the Field Museum? Yeah. Um, so they have 25 million artifacts in their you million. Million. Yeah. These are like little dinosaur teeth or something. Or a, lot of them, a lot of them are animals. Um, <laughs> I think they have half a million birds in their collection. No. Tons, so much stuff. Drawers full Are of birds. Are yeah. they in drawers? Mm-hmm. Like sleeping for eternity, little <laughs> tiny birds. That must have been unbelievable to see for you, Katie, wasn't it? Um, yeah, we went on a tour of where um, they keep the large anthropological artifacts. Oh, yeah. And, and about, what did he say before? About 1% of them are on display or less than 1%? Yeah, less than it. 1%. Sorry. Well, less than 1% of their whole collection is on display at any given time. That's astonishing to me. It, it's, and I don't, you know, I know the Field Museum well. I've been going there since I was a kid. Yeah. That, there's a lot of turnover there. Are they keeping these, Katie, for research or... Oh, interesting. It is mostly for research. And do you want to hear my favorite research story that I heard? Absolutely. Um, This is from John Bates. He's the associate curator of birds. Um, So they collect all of these things, and they don't always know how they'll be useful. Um, In 1899, they got two peregrine falcon eggs. And then decades later in the 60s, DDT was being used as a um, pesticide. Yeah. And it was very controversial. Um, One of the things that people were worried about was that it was harming bird populations, and people at that time were actually able to take current um, eggs from the peregrine falcons and compare them to these samples from 1899 and prove that the eggshells had gotten thinner and that contributed to DDT being outlawed. Well, that's fascinating because I think it reaffirms in you too, Jen Brandel, that this is a research facility. It's not yeah. just a place to take your kids when you have nothing better to do. It, it really is an important research facility. Yeah, the Field Museum does all kinds of amazing outreach and projects and civic engagement beyond just being an amazing place to spend an afternoon, which, um, yeah, Katie went down there into the storage areas for the large anthropological objects as well and got to see a lot of really cool stuff with James, our question asker. Oh, he went too? That's a huge bonus for you people who should call into Curious City (laughs) and get in on this. Like, you know, somebody's like, hey, who ate the most ice cream at Margie's Candies? And then you go and try to (laughs) do that. You get to be that person. (laughs) Was he overwhelmed? What did he think? Um, He had a great time. We actually have a clip of Alan Francisco from the anthropology department showing us around this space with the oversized anthropological artifacts. And he talked about something from a very, very old place. Let's have a listen. This is a stucco arch from the ancient city of Kish, which is uh, just south of modern-day Baghdad. And Kish was one of the first cities in human existence. It was, according to Mesopotamian uh, belief, where the gods came down to earth and gave kingship and order to mankind. And in that clip, you can kind of hear like some fan noise. And Katie, there, there was some sort of crazy ventilation system. Is that right? Yeah, they're so careful about managing the environment so the artifacts stay properly well, You would have preserved. to think, yeah. Yeah, so they have this huge fan system going. That's what you heard. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What else did you find down there that was intriguing to you? Um, I was really interested in these old um, ancient Roman baths. They were bronze, but they're so old, they've now kind of rusted to this bubbly green-blue color. You may not know this, Katie Clarkson, who's reporting this story for Curious City Day. I'm sitting here with Jen Brandel, the producer of this fascinating ongoing series. Do people get to take I mean, I guess if you're a board member, you can go down and take a tour of this, but do they ever give tours of these areas to anybody? 
You know, I actually, I'll jump in here. Someone someone did comment because we posted a little bit about this, some photos we have up online and a video online of, of some of the collection down there. And it turns out they said, and I haven't confirmed this, but if you are a member of the Field Museum, they do like a once or twice a year kind of event that you can go to and you can kind of poke around those those archives too. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and James um, was super, super excited to have gone with Katie, and I, we have a little bit of his reaction Oh, here. I love this when they get, yeah. yeah. Okay, James, have at it. How'd you think? Getting to actually see the inside and, you know, the, the belly of the Field Museum was just mind-blowing. And the amazing part is that what's down there actually fits the, you know, the imagination, you know, the fantasy of what you think is down there, so that was pretty cool. Uh Kitty Claxton, how freaked he sounds very excited there, but was he like really freaked out? <laughs> he had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh it was a lot to take in, sort of when we were in that space, everywhere you look there's some amazing artifact. You know, it's hard a, to take it a, all in. What a great treat for you too. And and you know, that's what Curious City does. It it enlightens and entertains and engages not just you listeners, but the people who get to report these things. What's the next one, Jen Brandel? Yeah, so the next one we got from John Kirby, who's from the Noble Square neighborhood. And he asked this, us this question really early on in the project a few months back. I kind of want to know where all the basketball players live because it's either on top of a tall building or in a big house way far away from all of us, and I just don't know which it is. So we wanted well, that to is one of the most interesting, <laughs> well-put questions. It's yeah. bizarre. I know, right? <laughs> but he was, he was wondering where the Bulls basketball players they live. Must, either because it's on top of a tall building. <laughs> that they're or either in penthouse a big, It sounds like something out of a fairy tale. <laughs> but it turns out it's kind of true. Uh, we talked to Cheryl Ray Stout, who's oh, WBEZ. Oh, great blogger, sports yeah, reporter our, here. our sports blogger. And, um, you know, she gave us the lowdown, and it turns out they're, she's right. You know, they, they're living kind of either in penthouses or really big places downtown or out in the suburbs. And I wanted to see, Rick, you are the man of all knowledge. Where do you think the Bulls live? We found out there's three places they really live. Deerfield. Okay. Highland Park mm-hmm. and Mars. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, here Cheryl raced out to uh, set the record straight on where the Bulls players live. It would be downtown Chicago in the Loop. Northbrook is where the ones that are permanent players that have houses. And a third one is in Deerfield right by Bertel Center. There is a hotel there. And the players that don't have, you know, contracts yet, that's where they stay. So those are the three main areas. They don't live other places because they like to be concentrated. And that's where they get, they get steered is in those three directions. Wow. Yeah, so Cheryl said that now with the the new practice facility probably going downtown, you know, that people are probably going to be selling. Some of the players will be selling their homes. And there's one last question. Yeah, so our last question we got from Sharzi from Naperville. And Sharzi wanted to know, what was the first non-wooden building ever built in the city of Chicago and who built it? I know because I'm looking at it. Okay, you I know the answer I knew to before, this one. But okay. So we spoke with Tim Samuelson, who's who the cultural historian of who Chicago, knows who knows in the world. everything there is to know about Chicago. And he says it was a gunpowder magazine, another way of saying a magazine is a storage building, at Fort Dearborn from around the early 1800s, like between 1803 and 1808. And here's a little bit more about that. You had to have a masonry building to keep your gunpowder in because it has a tendency to go kaboom. So amidst this early fort in the middle of the swamps of Chicago, there was a powder magazine. This was done by the United States government and Captain Whistler, who actually came and supervised the construction of the fort, bringing in the men and the materials to create it. 
what would I and what would Curious City and what would the city of Chicago do without Tim Samuels? I know, so really. You were going to be back, Katie Clarkson, and you were very good on your first report with another story for Curious City pretty soon, aren't you? I'm working on a piece about this, um, the same topic. Yep. So the Field Museum. We'll get a, a deeper look and some videos up at the end of the month. So Fantastic. you have that to look forward to. Go to WBZ.org, Curious City. Jen, you know how much I enjoy this. And Katie Clarkson, you were magnificent on your radio debut. One of the things about live radio is that you can prepare and prepare and prepare and have all kinds of neat stuff to say, but the clock is your master. So we ran out of time in that last little conversation for a couple fun facts that I had that I thought you podcast listeners might enjoy. The Bulls, as you may have heard, are going to build a new practice facility in downtown Chicago, and they're going to have to move. You know, if they're living out in the suburbs, it's not going to be that convenient to fight traffic in two directions to practice all the time. In terms of the housing situation, Cheryl raced out our sports blogger at W. Be easy had some inside information as to uh, what some of the players have in store. Luol Deng has an interesting situation, she says. He's been trying to sell one of his homes in the suburbs, and he lives in another house in the suburbs, and he's also got a place in the city. But his contract is up in two years, and he could be gone, so he doesn't know what he's doing. Derek Rose, he lives in both the suburbs and downtown in Trump Towers, to be exact. Don't stalk him. Just know that as a fun fact. Cheryl also said that first-round pick Marcus Teague is renting out in the suburbs now and is going to move to the city when the team moves. And Taj Gibson owns a house in the Northbrook area, and he's starting to look in the city for a new place soon, too. So anyway, in the next couple years, you'll probably see more Bulls players out and about in Chicago, kind of like you see Blackhawks around town here and there at bars and restaurants. Okay, well, that's it for this week's podcast. But, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to analytics, we can tell about 300 of you are listening and subscribing. And we know you're smart. We know you have ideas and we know you have opinions. So let us know what you like or what you don't like about the podcast. And we'll take your comments to heart, I promise. We're new at this and we want to deliver the stuff you like best. And we're learning. So help us learn. You can email your comments to us at CuriousCity at WBEZ.org. And hey, if you want to see video answers to all the questions we just talked about, head to wbez.org slash Curious City. Thanks to Adam Pindel for producing the podcast. Adios, amigos, and Happy New Year. Curious City is produced by Jennifer Brandel, WBEZ, Ziga, and AIR, the Association of Independence and Radio. Lead financial support comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, 
including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.